Welcome to the National Film Pod of Canada, the podcast with a different take on the movies. My name is George Kaplan. In this episode, I will be continuing the story of Canadian film that I started in earlier podcasts by talking about the beginnings of the feature film industry in Canada. To do this, I will be using as a reference a book called Canada's Hollywood by Ted Magder. In this podcast, I'm going to continue with my history of Canadian movies by talking about the 60s, where uh, the Canadian government finally decided to uh, fund a feature film industry. Uh, so this is pretty important. Uh, I'm going to use Ted Magner's book, Canada's Hollywood, which I used before when I talked about the CCP, the Canadian Cooperation Project. Uh, basically, I'm going to use his book as a reference. And the book itself is kind of a scholarly book, mostly, I guess, written for either scholars or film, stu uh, film students. But it's pretty much the, the only really good book about the Canadian film industry in the 60s and how the government finally gave money to the industry. So there's a lot of detail. I've tried to keep my... Uh, I tried to basically summarize the whole thing. Uh, but like I said, it's, it's very technical. So I tried to basically, my attitude was I was going to go down the middle. Like, I'm not going to get too scarly. I'm not going to give you all the gory details because there's a lot of them. Uh, but I'm not going to dumb it down either. So I tried to maintain a balance between the two. Uh, if you want to know all the, the gory details, you can read the book. It's called Canada's Hollywood by Ted Magder. Uh, it's probably out of print, but you can probably find a copy. Now, of course, you ask the question, well, you know, why bother going into all these uh, details? Well, if you're a film fan or a cinephile, you, uh, you kind of have to ask yourself a question. I guess you have asked yourself some questions about Canadian films. Like, why are Canadian films the way they are now? Why is the Canadian film industry the way it is now? Well, like anybody who's studied history, the answer is always the same. Yeah, you know, in order to uh, know the present, you got to know the past. So... That's, it's a simple answer, it's a cliche answer, but it's true. So by examining the 60s, which is when the government gave money, or loaned money, I should say, to producers, it formed the, uh, what we call back then, the Canadian Film Development Corporation, which later turned into Telefilm Canada. So basically, that is a, a history of these, well, it's the same organization, but we'll call it, since we started the 60s, the CFDC. And so you want to know if you... you why it is the way it is, and if you love it or hate it, you know, you, this, will, this will tell you how this organization got created in the first place and all the details of it. And so this will tell you what's basically why, why things are the way they are. So I have to go back like 60 years in the past to do this. Uh, a kind of a warning, just we're dealing with the government here, but there's a lot of jargon, bureaucracy like film commissioner and secretary of state. I'll try to explain briefly what these things are when I get to them. So I have to say that basically I'm going to use Magder's book, but uh, I'm only going to start on chapter five. I'm not going to cover the first four chapters, uh, which might seem a bit, uh, a bit strange, but like Magder says himself, the in the first four chapters, Canada in the beginning, like I mentioned before, there wasn't really a whole lot of feature films 
production produced in Canada up until the 60s when the government gave money for it. So, literally in the first 60 years, from 19th century, the beginning of movies to these early 60s, in Canada there wasn't really that much going on. So in other words, there's nothing to talk about. And Magder says himself that uh, it was a featureless film industry, which is funny in a uniquely Canadian way. So that's why I'm starting on chapter five in the middle of the book. That's when he starts to cover the 60s. And basically, uh, another thing I feel the need to mention again, there's a lot of talk in the book and in the upcoming podcast about something called the Massey Commission. Now, what's the Massey Commission? It was the first commission of people that were had uh, as a job to determine the role of the state in supporting the arts in Canada. It was the first time in Canada that somebody put together a committee, of course, full of bureaucrats, and their job was to figure out how can the government help the arts. So it was very influential in its time, and it did form kind of a foundation for future film commissions and film policy. So it, it pops up all the time in the uh, upcoming uh, podcast, so I figure you should know about it. Uh, it goes back a long time. It was released its findings in, in 1951. So it released its findings in 1951, a long time ago, but still has, like I said, a strange influence, mostly because it had the very much, it was kind of telling about the people at the time, well, at least, at least the, the elites or people in charge in the government and their attitude about the arts. It's had, it kind of had a classic definition of culture. And for them, there was high culture and low culture. High culture, you can guess, like the, it was like the theater, the literature, poetry, and so on. And the low culture, well, you can guess also like movies, movies, TV, everything else. So that was their idea of talking about culture. It did have a sharp critique of Hollywood uh, and its influence in Canada, but it didn't offer any kind of alternative. And uh, they had a kind of a famous quote that came from the report. It said, quote, Hollywood refashions us in its own image, unquote. And that's actually true, if you think about it. But I just mentioned the Massey Commission because uh, it will pop up all the time, and I don't want to stop and mention what it is. So now you know. So finally, I'm ready to start this uh, podcast uh, about the evolution of the feature film industry in Canada. So, like I said, I'm going to start with uh, Chapter 5, where we learn that there's something brewing in the air. There's uh, strange new changes going on. The government is starting to realize that it should fund a Canadian film industry, whereas before, in the previous 60 years, it didn't want to. So what happened to make it change its mind. Let's find out. In 1967, the federal government passed the Canadian Film Development Corporation Act with a measurable $10 million as a budget. Its mandate was to foster and promote the development of the feature film industry in Canada through the provisions of loans, advice, and awards. So finally, after, I guess you could say, more than 60 years of sporadic feature film making in Canada, the government decided to get into the business and help foster a Canadian filmmaking industry. Other governments and other countries had already been doing this for, de for decades. 
but you know, it took us like 60 years after the invention of movies to get government involved. Now, what had led to this? Like I said, I'm going to be repeating this a lot, but 60 years since the beginning of movies, there was nothing in Canada that led to any kind of feature film industry. But now in the early 60s or 67, suddenly we had the government saying, yeah, we will help you. So what, what, what led to this? Well, this is what we're going to find out. So things were beginning to change. And Magder, the author of the book, Canada's Hollywood, says he argued earlier that one of the major reasons for the lack of feature film productions in Canada had to do with three things. The Canadian film industry, so-called Canadian state, and the Canadian society as a whole. Hollywood's influence in Canada cannot be and has not been underestimated. Okay, that's what he says. But earlier chapters in the book have shown that the structure of cultural dependency is ultimately mediated and shaped by forces inside Canada, such as a general lack of interest in feature filmmaking on the part of Canadians working within the film industry, either exhibitors, producers, or government film commissioners, which is really a, kind of pretty weird when you think about it. And of course, there's the pervasive cultural conservatism that regarded feature films as, uh, at best, frivolous, and uh, so they, they ensure that the development of an indigenous feature film industry will be kept off the political agenda. And that I do agree with. There was a cultural conservatism back in the day. There is definitely, even now, a cultural conservatism, I think. Just a nice way of saying that it's a kind of a snobbery against films or mass media, or as the Massey Commission said, low culture. And this embrace of what Magder calls continentalism by Canadian capital and the Canadian state meant that if a coherent challenge to Hollywood's dominance inside Canada had arisen, it would have come up against serious opposition from the dominant political and economic forces in Canada. The American film industry had a lot of uh, allies in Canada who benefited from it, like uh, labs, equipment, studios, and so on. Now, during the 50s and 60s, people started to object to the lack of a Canadian film industry. There was a uh, film commissioner for the NFB, and he became... Uh, in favor of a film industry, the filmmakers working for the NFB didn't like some of the constraints inside the NFB, so they were kind of wanting to get outside of it to do feature films. So they were all for it. And there was a certain associations of filmmakers that started to get together and lobby the Canadian government. But there were still some dissension, and nobody could agree on specifics. They were like the associations, like there was one in Quebec called the APC, and it was an association for professional filmmakers. They were kind of like a lobby group, but they didn't have that much influence at the beginning. So there was a lot of change in the way Canadians thought about themselves, and they wanted to have their own film industry. And this was early 60s. Now we've, we're talking about the period prior to the creation of the CFDC, so what led up to this. So we're talking early 60s. So there was a lot of political factors, and different people started to think new thoughts and wanted to rearrange things and didn't want to he didn't want the status quo anymore. And this was also in Quebec, but it was kind of mirrored slightly in the English part of the country. We were all getting tired of American culture and American capital. Out of good old days. There was a 
Government Commission, of course, in 1957, that warned of potential loss of sovereignty, economic, political, and so on. And here the author says, quote, support for a feature film industry would be just one facet of a renewed and more urgent attempt to maintain and secure the cohesion of the Canadian state and Canadian society. So it was done. It was done for a purpose, to serve a political aim. So here's, again, more of a summary of what was going on before the CFDC was created. In 27 April 1949, in a movie theater in Ottawa, 400 guests attended the first annual Canadian Film Awards. And the emphasis from all the awards and the film shown was mostly came from theatrical documentary and theatrical shorts. So that these basically reflected the limits at the time of Canada's film production. So just documentaries and short films. In 1949, again, there was only one feature film produced in Canada that year. One feature film produced in 1949. It was a melodrama called Un homme et son péché from Quebec, loosely titled or translated as A Man in His Sin. Norman McLaren was presented with an award for groundbreaking work in animation, of course. During the 50s, the awards were dominated by the NFP Productions. And with uh, Crawley Films, uh, our friend Budge Crawley Film Production Company, being the uh, main consistent winner of major awards, uh, he was pretty much the only private producer who did that. Who did that. Uh, there was another feature film called uh, Ticoc, which was another Quebec film based on a famous play that won a Best Feature Film in 1953. And that was the last award given to a full-length feature film until 1960. So we see here what type of, literally a movie desert Canada was at that time. Feature film movie desert, actually, that Canada was at that time. There was a famous uh, actress from Hollywood called Dorothy L'Amour, who graced this, this uh, ceremony in 1953. So even during these uh, periods of awards, which are supposed to honor Canadian films and filmmakers, Hollywood's presence was never far. During the 50s, uh, the Motion Picture Association of America continued to praise the success of the Canadian Cooperation Project. See my previous podcast about that project. In the year 1956, the, quote, Film Daily, unquote, a film industry trade paper, reported that profits from Canada to the United States had topped $24 million, the highest total foreign earnings for the Hollywood majors. To contrast what was happening in Canada, let's go to Europe and see what they were doing. In Europe, protective measures against Hollywood had started to take their toll. So in response, the American majors adjusted their corporate strategies. The U.S. majors learned to take advantage of European subsidies designed to promote national production. As an example, by 1965, Hollywood film subsidiaries in Great Britain were estimated to have received nearly 80% of the British production fund. So in other words, the British government ended up subsidizing Hollywood movies. And just, I just point to use this to point out that Hollywood always gets back its money. In the U.S., things were changing again in the 50s and 60s. The studios were gradually losing their monopolies because of antitrust decrees by the U.S. government back in the day when the U.S. government uh, were against monopolies. So the studio system was beginning to break down. 
theaters were closing, and so on. By the end of the 50s, major production interests in Hollywood learned to use their facilities to make television programs and discovered that the vast stock of old movies was ready-made for TV. In 1960, Hollywood films in the U.S. hovered around 200 films a year, half the total in the immediate post-war period. So things were changing. The studios were losing their grip, and it seemed like there was a bit of a change or an opening, I guess, for Canada to have its own feature film industry. There was a bit of a cautious optimism, often tinged with a sense of frustration. The film industry here was reaching a mature state. The conditions were improving. And this was the 60s, so it took a while to get to this state. Well, 60 years, really. And somebody wrote that uh, basically the proponents in favor of the feature film industry in Canada have become caught up in the occurrence of a new Canadian nationalism, which is true. By the late 50s and early 60s, TV was becoming a thing and not to be ignored. And it was a good day to make some money. Less risky, I suppose. By 1957, there were close to 60 production companies, nearly double the total in 1952. And we're talking about Canada here. Much of the activity centered on American-sponsored production, of course, many of which were targeted to the British market, as with the old talkies of the 30s. The CBC spent $3.5 million on film production for television, and this amount was contracted out to some 30 private companies. But despite all that, the primary film producers remained wary of large-scale film production. And there were two exceptions to this. And the author brings up our old friend again, Budge Crawley of Keen Ottawa, who had made a lot of money doing industrial film, as we heard in my previous podcast. By 1961, his company had produced over a thousand short films seen in 21 countries. And he, even though he at first said that the Canadian feature film industry made no economic sense, later on, he changed his mind and ended up doing feature films, which didn't work out too well. He had been successful financially in film production for industrial documentaries, but his venture in feature films didn't work out and then people said, well, if someone like that, who's obviously a professional, he knows what he's doing, he can't succeed in feature films, well, what can we do? By this time, the author says that the technical aspects of the industry were better in Canada. I guess he means like we had some film technicians who knew what they were doing, but because of our lack of experience in feature films, specifically over the past 60 plus years, we were lacking experience in some other areas like screenwriting, directing, because there just wasn't enough production for people to gain experience in. And how can you get experience in these areas if there are no opportunities? Which is, of course, I guess why Budge Crawley hired an American director for his second feature, The Luck of Ginger Coffee. The two films that Budge had made, Ginger Coffee and another one called Ville Jolie, these were features, were actually about Canada and Canadian life, but had American crew and foreign actors. This was the paradox of feature filmmaking in Canada back in the early 60s. The author here says that this tendency to make films about Canada was not shared by his colleagues in the film industry, especially those in English Canada. English Canadian producers were particularly susceptible to the argument that Canadian features would have to be oriented around themes deemed appropriate 
for the U.S. market. In the early 60s, Crawley symbolized a small assembly of Canadian producers who had not completely internalized the ethos of Hollywood. He brings up another person, Nat Taylor, who used the Hollywood network in Canada as a basis for personal profits. Taylor had been involved in Canadian films since the 30s. He began an exhibition. He was associated with famous players' uh, company, Paramount in the U.S., but he was apparently independent of the U.S. majors, using them, not just working for them, so they say. Taylor was innovative. At 46, he opened the first Canadian theater devoted to so-called art film. He pioneered the conception of the multiplex theater. By the 50s, he had become a prominent and respected figure in the industry. An interesting note, the author says, Taylor was well aware that one could make a very good living in the film industry without actually producing films, especially feature films. Obviously, a feature film is the riskiest thing to do in the industry. If you make a few unsuccessful movies, well, you basically go broke. It's in the exhibition, distribution, and leasing of technical facilities like studios and labs where, that, uh, where the, the safe money is anyway. But eventually, Taylor joined up with film producers to produce a movie called The Mask in 1960. And this is the type of film that Taylor thought Canadians should be making. The Mask was a gimmick kind of picture with a little budget about a psychiatrist who discovers an ancient Aztec voodoo mask with murderous powers. It's like a 3D horror movie. It was relatively successful. That was his idea of what a Canadian film should be like. A film product that looks like a Hollywood film, but isn't, and that can be sold to the American market with no Canadian content inside to confuse Americans. He was pretty much the opposite of what Budge Crowley was. But in 1959, he said, only one spark is necessary to set ablaze a whole new industry, government subsidy. Which is, of course, ironic that being a businessman in the private sector, he wanted government subsidies. He said the exhibition quotas were out for the simple reason that they would establish a bias for production oriented to the home market, which in Canada's case represents approximately 3% of the world back in the 50s and 60s, of course. His idea of the quotas was that the film producers should be given a subsidy based on their film's performance in foreign markets to be applied to future productions. Taylor felt that such a strategy would boost the government's overall objective of increasing exports and improving the balance of trade. It would also encourage Canadian film producers to make movies that looked like Hollywood ones. During all this period when there was all kinds of noises being made about a Canadian film industry, the major exhibitors and distributors remained silent on the issue, the author says here that given their critical position within the Hollywood nexus, they had little to gain from a Canadian film industry. There were a few professional associations related to film. Most of them were not all that keen on a feature film industry in Canada. They were Canadian businesses owned by Canadians, but all their money came from dealing with American film industry. And because so much of their business came from another country, the U.S. could easily withdraw their support. 
And then they go bankrupt. And that's about as clear as that can be. So they had a conflict of interest. In terms of support for this feature film industry, there were also different unions and trade unions like the Canadian Society of Cinematographers. And they were all kind of pretty much kind of wishy-washy on the subject. They weren't that effective as a lobby anyway. And they all had their own bias, of course. Like the Canadian Society of Cinematographers that was established in the fall of 61, it was basically lukewarm for the proposal. They put out an editorial that said the industry should concentrate on television production and documentary filmmaking as a more solid foundation. But eventually, when the feature film fund was announced, they endorsed it. Another union, IATSE, which was basically an American union and had a local Toronto chapter, but it was, of course, American, so they had their own bias. The union chapter in Toronto was dominated by the New York office, and for the New York office, American jobs came first. In the world of the Hollywood film industry, for people who don't know, the production personnel of a movie falls in two categories, what they call below the line and above the line. Below-the-line personnel are people who, according to Hollywood anyway, don't do anything creative, like driving vans of equipment, caterers, accountants, assistants, electricians, and so on. People that are necessary to the film's production, but don't really contribute anything creative. And there were a few of those uh, below-the-line people in Canada, but uh, they didn't care much about the fun. I mean, they didn't really care as long as they had jobs, basically as long as there was a stable production environment. Those who work above the line are the more creative part of the movie-making process, such as director, screenwriters, editors, and so on. For them, it's a bit of a concern. For the Canadian directors, the issue of employment was bound up with the existence of a full-scale domestic industry, which created positions for Canadians. So, of course, you know, people below the line will get jobs either way, so it doesn't matter to them. But above the line... The people, the directors, the scriptwriters, these people making movies in Canada were usually Americans. Not much opportunities for Canadians, people who lived or worked above the line. So again, if you're above the line, it's important. For people below, it didn't really matter. Magdra says, quote, American-backed productions may well have produced employment for Canadian film workers and profits for some, but they typically shunned the use of Canadians in creative roles, unquote. On the other hand, there were some reps and lobbies that actually were into the whole Canadian film industry thing. A real one, not a branch plant one. The Directors Guild of Canada basically was into it, more or less. It suggested that funds should be in part derived from a tax on the rental receipts, the revenues of foreign companies, which basically means taxing Hollywood movies and the revenues that they generate. So they also wanted to address the problem of distribution and argued that distributors based in Canada should be persuaded to handle a certain number of movies, meaning quota. They didn't want a, qu a screen quota, but they said the CBC should be required to buy television programs and so on. So they were more in favor. They didn't want screen quotas, but they said that the CBC should be required to buy television programs and so on. So they were more in favor. There was another association called the APC, which was a producer's trade association in Quebec. They were pretty radical. They really wanted a break from the status quo. They wanted a loan fund paid for through the box office tax 
and a levy on foreign film rental. They wanted majority ownership of Canadian theatre chains transferred to Canadian. Pretty radical stuff here. So all this was bubbling up in the early 60s. So what was going to happen? Are we going to have a film industry here or are we not? Who's going to pay for it? How is it going to be managed? So you can see there's a whole bunch of conflicts of interest and there's no unity in all this. The government basically was pretty slow in making up its mind. I guess you can always blame the government, of course, but they didn't really have any pressure put on them about what to do. I mean, they, they did have different kinds of pressure, but they all contradicted each other. Some lobbies didn't know what they wanted or didn't care. Some wanted radical change, some didn't, so on and so forth. So it's all a bit of a confusing mess. So here, the last question is, the author says, where would the Canadian state come down? Canada's Hollywood, Chapter 6. Times were changing. This was the 60s. The Canadian government started to assert itself. It had imposed a legislation to prevent an American takeover of a Canadian bank. It had denounced the American bombings of North Vietnam. And it had endorsed the UN membership for the People's Republic of China. And there was an attempt to restructure the relationship of dependency that Canada had with the US. The strategy was to advance Canadian interests without seriously damaging or disrupting prevailing American interests and their Canadian allies. That was a rule to be invoked when it came time to establish the Canadian Film Development Corporation. So, not so assertive. Magder points out that the cultural conservatism of Canada's old guard was in decline. Perhaps it reflected the triumph of American cultural hegemony over the legacy of British colonialism, where basically in Canada replacing one thing with another. So the government had a bunch of strategies to establish Canadian culture, because this being 1967, this was the centennial of the country. The establishment of this CFDC was one of the clearest examples of the Canadian state's decision to promote the Canadianization of popular culture in Canada. The Liberal government committed itself to addressing the problem of state support for Canadian culture, so they finally left behind the old-time cultural conservatism. A man called Maurice Lamontagne, a Francophone economist with a Harvard PhD, became Secretary of State in 64. This department was not in charge of culture, but gradually it took on the, the administration of cultural agencies like the Canada Council, CBC Board, of broadcast governors, NFB, National Gallery, and so on. In case you're curious, uh, Secretary of State is kind of like a junior minister who helps out the department. Uh, in this case, this was the Department of Communication. So he's basically like a step down from the actual minister in charge of the department and communication department. Now it's called, then it was called the Department of Communication. Now it's called the Canadian Heritage Ministry, I guess. And this guy, La Montagne, understood all the hill effects that attended the massive uh, inflow of cultural products. But he refused to depict this as a problem that stems from sources outside of Canadian control, like the rapacious American culture exercising its own version of manifest destiny 
Rather, the problem lay in the fact that Canadians had adhered much too closely to the American tradition of non-intervention by government. As a result, our cultural life is relatively weak and dangerously exposed to the dominating influences of the United States. The goal was not isolation from American culture, but more and better Canadian culture. And to do this, needed to the state to help expand cultural expression. The committee included the representatives from the Department of Finance. And just to show that uh, when you're dealing with the government, you're bound to get bureaucracy, obviously, uh, in the following, there's a lot of it, so prepare yourself. In the 9th of December 1963, the Secretary of State of the time issued a cabinet memorandum establishing an interdepartmental committee on the possible development of feature film production in Canada. The committee included representatives from the Department of Finance, Industry, Trade and Commerce, External Affairs, the Bank of Canada, and the National Film Board. And here's an interesting note, is that with all this going on, you think there would be some input from private industry filmmakers and producers outside the government? But the work of this committee that I just mentioned was done behind closed doors, without the informal participation of interested groups or individuals within the industry. But the various briefs submitted to the committee certainly played a part in deliberations. But ultimately, the policy was constructed by state officials acting like typical bureaucrats. At the same time, Canadian officials began negotiation on co-production treaties with a number of European countries. And these treaties had become a kind of the rage in Europe in the 60s. In Italy and France especially, these co-productions established the economic basis for the boom in film production in the early 60s. The first treaty that Canada signed was with France in the fall of 1963. In June 64, the Interdepartmental Committee got its act together and submitted its first proposal to Cabinet, the establishment of a loan fund for the film industry. The Cabinet agreed. They made public their decision to the public at the NFB's 25th anniversary celebration. Canadian filmmakers were elated, but the Globe and Mail said in an editorial entitled Money to Burn that this new film fund was the most expensive and most uncertain business. So, the author says, opposition to this proposal reflected both the cultural conservatism of the government and people in general with respect to mass culture and a general distrust, of course, of state intervention in the economy. And then, of course, it decided to leave the distribution system the way it was. There was to be no quota. The committee members had serious reservations about interfering with the market practices of the major film distributors. They were of the opinion that the American distributors would accept good Canadian feature films into their distribution system. They didn't want to create a hostile environment by imposing or altering the distribution system, which was dominated by, of course, American companies. The committee's final report was submitted for cabinet approval on the 12th of August 65, slightly more than a year and a half after all the deliberations had begun. The government agreed to a total fund of $10 million to be dispensed over five years. Of this amount, $8.5 million would be used for investment loans to producers and the remaining 1.5 would be used for awards and assistance to filmmakers. So they did this basically trying to please two groups of people 
in the established industry. The book says that uh, the $10 million loan fund to productions would certainly not create a major upheaval in the day-to-day operations of the major interests in, in the Canadian film industry. So they succeeded in pleasing the Canadians and not upsetting the Americans. So an act to provide for the establishment of the Canadian Film Development Corporation was introduced in the House of of Commons in June 1966. It received final reading in March of the following year. The bill had just gone through first reading when the Secretary of State received the request for funds. It came from Nat Taylor. Remember him? He wanted to make a film called Ski Bum with an American production company. They would be the Hollywood movie stars in that movie. Maybe Paul Newman or Steve McQueen. It was budgeted at $4 million, and Taylor wanted a loan of $1 million from the CFDC. Just to show that nothing changes in Canadian film history, or about the way movies are thought of here and by some people, the excuse to make this film was that uh, it was a, quote, good centennial ploy for tourists in spotlighting the Rockies, unquote, where most of the action of the movie would take place. The request was turned down on the basis that the money could not be advanced before the CFDC was actually established. There were other filmmakers in Canada and in Quebec who didn't think of movies solely as a business and were uh, genuinely excited about the prospect building a national cinema that would have its own aesthetic and narrative codes. So here we see two very different perceptions of what a Canadian feature film industry should look like confront the CFDC as it began establishing the industry's foundation. That's the end of the episode. A short note here. In listening to the podcast, you might have found a few recurring themes, such as the fight between art and commerce, the lack of a unified front to fight for funding movies, kind of a laissez-faire attitude from the Canadian government, quotas and levies, and fear of Hollywood. You'll find that these things recur again and again in later podcasts about the Canadian feature film industry, because some things in Canada never change. If you have any comments about the podcast, you can reach the NFP at nfpcan at protonmail.com nfpcan at protonmail.com Bye for now.